Good morning, fiddle and pipians. Fiddle and pipians? Fiddle peeps. and People? I've been saying fiddle and pipe peeps. That that flows off the tongue a lot better than whatever I'm trying to do. It also reminds me of peeps that you eat on Easter and how gross they are. I was going to say hot take. I think peeps are disgusting. Yeah, I've only had them once and I will only have them once. I will never have them again. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you love us a lot and you want to listen more of us, then check out our Patreon. We have a fiddle and pipe happy hour podcast where you can... Have a drink, chill, and listen to us just rant. And what else, Brittany? We also have on Anchor uh, listener support, which has three tiers. These are all just options that you can do if you want to do a little bit extra to support us to help make our podcast better. I know that for both of us, this is basically a full-time job (laughs) making Mm -hmm. a podcast. Uh, We put a lot of time and effort into this, and... It would be great if we could get some support so that way we can make it better and continue improving it. Mm -hmm. Providing the content that y'all love and know. Know and love. Exactly. (laughs) And if you want to join in more of the fun, we have a Facebook group called Fiddle and Pipe Forum. And it's not gross like peeps. It's really cool. Yeah, and it's awesome. We will announce certain things it's an open forum for you guys to talk about like what you liked about the episodes if you have any feedback maybe if there's specific books or topics that you would like us to talk about then please feel free to join us yeah and if you want to just chitty chat with us that's fine too we're always down for a good old-fashioned chitty chat yeah and kitty cats (laughs) (laughs) last but not least please please Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear what you guys think about the podcast. And if you want to go on there, give us a five-star rating. Give us an awesome review. And then we'll leave you alone. Until next week. Yeah, basically. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, I'm at CatFlinchFlute. And I'm at BM Ross Music. That's all I can think of. Episode now. Hi, I'm Brittany Ross, and I play the fiddle. I'm Catherine Flincham, and I play the pipe. And together, we are Fiddle and Pipe. Two classical musicians who are reading and discussing topics beyond the staff. So grab a book, take a seat, and tune in. Welcome to our, uh, what is this, 13th episode? At this point? Lucky 13. That's also Taylor Swift's favorite number. Just putting that out there. God, you're so basic. I'm pretty big on 13 myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see? So you might hear a voice that you are not used to hearing. Today, we have on Fiddle and Pipe, one of my close friends, my neighbor. It took a freaking pandemic for us to meet. And a vocalist of the Kennesaw-based band Concrete Supergun, Rainer Slay. Hey guys. Yay. Yay. And you are here to tell us about all the fucks you give. (laughs) Yeah, I don't give too many. (laughs) I think we all need that. (laughs) We're all around similar ages. Rainer's kind of the old man of the group. (laughs) He's 35, so like he's already crossed that 30 threshold. Yeah, I'm at that age where I have to have ibuprofen on me all the time. Oh my God. I'm getting there. (laughs) I asked Rainer for advice on what you need to do when you hit 30 and what were the things you told me i don't remember probably something about ibuprofen. it was like though. always have a bottle of ibuprofen in your car in your house and at work oh my god that sounds right <laughs> and then there was something else that you told me i think it had something to do with drinking like only have one drink when you go out <laughs> and always drink water yeah <laughs> one drink and then a glass of water or you'll you'll pay for it the next morning dead. <laughs> oh my god i have so much I'm getting there i'm almost a year away almost should we talk about not giving a fuck we should talk about chapter five of the subtle art of not giving a fuck which is you are always choosing and what are we choosing we're not choosing boundaries we're choosing how we react to things that happen to us yeah yeah good job class Often a problem being painful or powerful depends on if we choose it or not. We might not be able to control what happens to us, but 
you know, in any kind of situation, but we really need to control how we interpret and react, respond. And we are always making that decision, even if we are choosing not to actively do anything, then that in itself is a decision and things will passively happen to us. So we kind of need to take that and think about what we are choosing to care about, what we're choosing to give a fuck, fuck about a fup. A fup. <laughs> a fup about and how we are measuring it yeah i think the idea that you're always choosing even if you don't choose that's still a choice Mm -hmm. that's a good thing to realize because a lot of times we maybe think that we're being passive but you're always being active even by not making a choice you're still basically making a choice it reminded me of something rainer that you told me a while ago when we were talking about covid vaccines and you were saying that oftentimes people would rather take a passive risk with things. Actually, do you want to explain it? You might be able to explain it better than me. Yeah, just basically, if the risk comes from you making a choice and doing something, like with the vaccines, for instance, there is a very small risk that you could have some sort of side effect. And there is a larger chance, you know, when we're talking about vaccines, that you will get COVID or have complications from COVID people are more willing to risk not doing something and possibly have something happen to them with COVID than they are willing to take an active step to get that vaccine and and take that risk, Mm -hmm. if that makes Mm -hmm. sense at all. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) I think people are afraid if they take the action and something happens, then whatever thing that happens to them they will then feel like it's their fault that it happened because they're the one that took the action and like the thing happened no one wants to bear responsibility for Mm -hmm. what happened talks a lot about responsibility versus fault how you're not always at fault but you're always responsible for whatever happens to you because you know it's happening to you and you have to deal with it yeah Mm -hmm. you're the only one really experiencing it so you kind of need to take responsibility. Like, it's not your fault. I think the two examples that he used were, it's not your fault if you're short, or it's not your fault if you find a baby on your doorstep, but you are given this situation and you need to figure out what decisions you're going to make to get whatever result you want. Exactly. No one else is going to be responsible for it. Yeah, this actually kind of brings back a weird, awkward story with me flute teaching. A few years ago, I had a prospective student, and I did a lesson with him. It was a trial lesson at the time, and I just wanted to get to know who this person was and what their skill levels and goals were, that kind of deal, because I like to do that before actually committing to a lesson, especially if it's somebody that I'm not sure were compatible. I had the lesson as much as, you know, I wished that this would have been a good match. I just didn't feel like it, but I told them, I said, it was nice meeting you. If you want to continue lessons, then please let me know. I always do that. I always say that, especially after the first lesson. Honestly, I didn't think it was going to work out because the student just did not seem interested in what anything I had to say, anything I suggested. It just wasn't a good vibe. I kind of left it at that, and I didn't hear back from them at all, so I just assumed that they weren't going to continue lessons, and I was okay with that. So the next week, same time, same day, I am at the grocery store. (laughs) I don't know how it is with y'all when you're at the grocery store, but do you guys have like Wi-Fi problems? Or is it just Denver? In the grocery store? Yeah. Yeah, the Kroger here, I get zero service inside the Kroger. Really? Yeah. Every time I'm at a King Seafood, which is basically Kroger here, like I never get cell service and I get so angry. So I just write down my list, have my coupons, and I'm like, okay, like this is my... I can't, like, search anything, but I also don't get good, like, phone service either. So you can't call Woody and be like, oh, shit, do we have any bread? Yeah. I have to, like, do it beforehand. Luckily, for me. I mean, I have a King Supers literally two blocks from my house, which is great. At the time, I was living at my old place, so I lived a little farther, but there was, like, no cell service. So all the phone calls that I got in the middle of me grocery shopping, I got them when I was in my car. Because that was when, I guess, the service just decided to start again (laughs) and um, 
I sat down and I saw that I had like a few missed calls and voicemails and it was from this student. And I was like, what? They said that they were ready and they were waiting for me. And I was just sitting there like, uh. Was this a Zoom lesson or online no, lesson? No, this was, this was an in-person. This was like years ago. Oh, so they were waiting Pre-COVID. at your house. They were oh, wow. actually, I used to teach lessons at my, at the music school that I went to. So oh, they were okay. there and I was just like, oh my gosh, I was mortified. I never had this happen before ever. I literally felt so bad. I called them back and I left a voicemail explaining the situation. I know that I told them, please let me know if you want to continue lessons. And they never said mm-hmm. anything. They just said, okay, I will let you know. They never emailed me I never I looked in my inbox didn't see anything so I guess they thought that we were just going to continue but they never gave me that confirmation and that's awkward I mean I got a really cold response afterwards and I was just sitting there and I felt really awful I thought it was my fault at first I was sitting there and I was just like oh my god this makes you look really unprofessional. You're trying to go out there in this world, especially here in Denver. Now you look bad. I really took a lot of blame on myself, but then I had to, after sitting down and thinking about it over the next few days, I just kind of told myself, this was not your fault. This was a miscommunication. You can't put full blame on yourself. And just make sure next time, if this does happen, if you do have a prospective student, just make sure it's clear if you want to continue lessons or not. And ever since then, it's been fine. I think the only thing I would have done differently is just make sure there was some communication in writing. So that way you could reference a text or an email or something. Right? Right? (laughs) And I usually, nowadays, I actually do that too. I'm like, please just let me know. Think about it over the next few days. And usually... 9 out of 10, I get an email back, so it's good. But that was a horror story. I hope nobody ever has to deal with that, so. That's so awkward. What's also really awkward is that the student actually knows some pretty well-known flutists here in Denver, so I don't know if those flutists think of me as somebody that's kind of sketchy for teaching. I don't know, but... It was just an honest miscommunication, I think. The quote that stood out to me from this section was, people who date each other tend to have similar values. If people in your relationships are selfish and doing hurtful things, it's likely you are too. You just don't realize it. And that kind of resonated with me because I think you can make it even more broad and not just have it be romantic relationships. I think it's Mm -hmm. the same in any kind of relationship. You tend to attract and be attracted to people who share similar ideals. Oftentimes people don't want to take responsibility for their actions and thoughts. Instead, they will project it onto other people. But Mm. if other people around you are kind of crappy people, there's a good chance that you are also doing Mm. something kind of crappy. Does that make sense? That's kind of one of the things I took away from it when he was talking about one of the many girlfriends i guess that cheated on him <laughs> he eventually like after like a year was able to like i guess self-reflect and be like oh actually i was actually kind of a crappy person too yeah and i think it's it's really really hard to do that to look at yourself honestly and be like okay i suck in this area in this area and i did this wrong mm-hmm. if you can do that you can then take steps to change that and not not do that anymore i think that's huge my ex best friend ended up being a really <laughs> shitty person <laughs> sorry i'm just we were very close and we were very good friends from probably about fifth grade to freshman year in high school and when we i guess for lack of a better word broke up it was You know when you have very close friendships and there's a fight that dissolves a friendship, it feels as bad as, like, a romantic breakup? Yeah! that's what it felt like. It It was bad. It was terrible. And I was reflecting on it. I'm like, okay, obviously this person is the shitty person of the two of us. Having been separated from it for that long, I could still say that that person was the shitty person. But there are some things that I could have done better. So I think it's good to look at situations with a degree of separation and always think I can't control everything but let's evaluate what I can control 
I agree with that because I relate to this a lot. I also was in a friendship, not as long as yours, Brittany, Mm -hmm. but I got myself in a friendship that I thought was really close. It was a very close friendship throughout basically my senior year of high school through undergrad, and I really took a lot of influence in this friendship where it actually broke apart one of my oldest and closest friendships that I had at the time. I remember thinking so much about this one person that I literally ditched Mm -hmm. because this other friend was telling me they're not a good person, blah, 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 blah. I feel like they only met like a handful of times, not that much. And I couldn't understand why. Yeah, there were times where me and my close friend and I, we had fights, but we Mm -hmm. would usually make up and talk about it. It wasn't like they were ever toxic. I just remember finally, like, after finished undergrad and this friend of mine was telling me that I needed to break up with Woody because we were spending too much time together. Yeah, that... (laughs) I know, because I wasn't... That's a red flag. That's what I really took away from my former best friend is I think the grand majority of it was their fault for a variety of reasons. But it really made me realize that I was a shitty friend to people that I should have been a better friend to because I was more focused on this person. Well, that's what I noticed, too, because, like, I kept thinking about this one person that I broke off a friendship with that I had been friends with since, like, freaking middle school. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we connected at school. We connected at church together. And we just had the same sense of humor. Like, she was basically my sister. Mm -hmm. The sister I never had. When this person was blaming me for all these things, I just started to think about it, and we had this giant fight because this person was telling me that I was never around for them, which was absolute bullshit, just saying. Mm -hmm. Like, I would speed from Kennesaw to Town Lake to sit by their side as they cried about the fifth boyfriend they broke up with within a month. I drove this person's sister to the ER, took the time out of my day to drive them to the ER because they were in pain. And I was like, yeah, I'll help you out and do this for you. I did a lot. After that fight, I just decided, is this worth the stress? And they then deleted me on Facebook. And I was like, okay, well, there's the sign. (laughs) And I just ended it right there. But not too long after that happened, I just took the courage. Because I definitely blamed myself for being a shitty person to this person that I broke a friendship with years Mm -hmm. ago. I felt awful, and I knew that I didn't do the right thing and standing up for myself and saying, this person is my friend, and I'm not going to end our friendship because you don't like them kind of deal. So I contacted them again. I was like, hey, and the first thing I I just, I sent this apology letter. It was just a large, like, message on Facebook. Word vomit? I didn't expect, yeah, like, word vomit, basically, about (laughs) how bad I felt over the years how I wasn't being a good friend or a good person at the time. I put a lot of blame on myself, and I explained why. And I didn't expect them to ever message me back, but they did. Now we're friends again, and we – it's great. (laughs) Like, we basically – I mean, even to this day, I'll sit there and be like, I feel so shitty. Like, I tell Mm -hmm. them all the time. It's something that I definitely – have learned from and I see myself as a different person now and how should I like handle relationships with others even if Mm -hmm. things are not so good I think it's just like a thing that you learn as you get older yeah I thought it was interesting because even though the quote was really primarily about dating I've always been lucky I never had a bad ex obviously David's not bad I'm still with him Mm. Um. (laughs) (laughs) good but definitely with friends I have had some hit and miss friends and I think it can be especially when you're younger and friends are a little bit more formative and more kind of central to who you are because romantic relationships I think don't start playing a really big role in who you are as a person until high school at least learning when to get out of a toxic relationship whether it's romantic or just friends it's tough Mm -hmm. because you're always afraid like am I making the right move am I going to regret this Mm -hmm. I can relate kind of to to what you did and that I parted ways with a friend felt bad about it afterwards and tried to reconnect and 
I haven't spoken to him in over a decade now because he doesn't do any social media. Oh. I have like literally no way of contacting this guy. I've tried every means I can think of and nothing. So it's just sort of like one of those regrets that I have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I definitely broke off this friendship, we even got together not too long after and had a talk. And I thought I was like, well, maybe I need to like sit down and talk with this person and see if I should give them a second chance. But after our conversation, I was like, this is not the way. No, this is not how I want to live my life. And I started freaking out because I was like, how do I socialize now? Because I spent a lot of time with this one person. I mean, I was friends with Brittany at the time. But I didn't even, but like, But then you realized about, like, how weird I was, and you were like, oh, God, are these the kind of people I'm going to attract? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just really got me. But now I, I feel better. Also, same with dating. Yeah. All three of us have been in, I think, equally long relationships. Rainer and his wife have been together as long as Dave and I have been together, and you and Woody started dating the same year, actually. So all of our yeah. wow. all of our relationships are this. What year was that? 2013. I know. David and I will sometimes joke about what would happen if like we split up and I'd be like, "Oh my god, I don't know how to date." Like, what would I You did say something like the I day after do? y'all got married where you were like, "God forbid if David dies and he's standing right next to you." <laughs> and you're like, it's like I'm, I'm not eloping. doing this shit again." <laughs> Yeah, you're like, I'm eloping, and David's just standing there, like, smiling, and I'm like, damn, y'all haven't even been married for 12 hours. I think that's unlikely for any of us, but the idea of dating again is honestly such a horrifying idea. I'm like, oh, I I can't even, like, I can't even fart near that person. Like, what do I do? Yeah. So (laughs) now imagine that feeling, but you're, what, seven years older? Is that my seven years older than you? Now imagine being 35 and thinking that same thing. Like, no, there's no way. I mean, yeah, if I was as old as you, Rainer, I'd probably just, you know, I take out my 401k. Yeah, I just die. Die a lonely hermit. (laughs) Just die a lonely hermit. Yeah. Never again. You already have your man cave basement, so you're already partway there. (laughs) Oh, I want to talk about, okay, the, so the story in the book where he's talking about William James, the guy that has, like, all the the issues, like, stomach problems and back problems. Oh, the psychologist? Did you relate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I did relate. But at the end there, he said that the guy decided to spend a year believing that 100%, well, I have it right here. He would spend one year believing that he was 100% responsible for everything that occurred in his life. And I thought that was interesting because I'm going to take the charitable interpretation of what he said because I don't think you can actually choose what you believe. Like you, either you believe something or you don't. You can become convinced of something and then you believe it, but I don't think you can just... But I think what he means is he was going to act as though that mm-hmm. were the case. That's how I interpret it. Yeah, and he ended up you know, becoming, I guess, one of the forefather of american psychology or something something like that yeah and i thought that was interesting because it's kind of the opposite of what a lot of people do a lot of people and i know he talks about this later in the book as well about victimhood mm-hmm. and about constantly thinking that you're the victim and that someone else should you know solve your problems but i do think if you can get into that mentality of all right this situation sucks whatever it is i didn't cause it it wasn't my fault but now I'm going to try to do something about it. Mm-hmm. That's huge. And I know in my own life, anytime I have done that, things have always worked out for the better. It's kind of amazing to what extent we hold ourselves back. One thing that I thought was cool is he addresses tragedies such as like traumas and he addresses genetics such as like mental illness and things like childhood abuse and stuff like that. But he says, regardless of all this, it's still your responsibility to deal with the hand you're dealt in life. A lot of people are dealt really sucky hands, or a lot of people have various traumas in their life, but it's still your responsibility to get over that and make yourself a functioning adult, you know, society. Mm-hmm. He addressed the victimhood thing which i thought was interesting with our current political climate 
Do y'all remember that? The victim hook chick. He said victimhood chic. Chic? Is that how it's that? Oh my god. Yeah, I, I am was illiterate. Like, I think I might have read it as chick too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God Rainer's here. <laughs> Thank you, Rainer. <laughs> How people are just continuously being outraged over everything. And it goes from people who are upset that Starbucks doesn't have a Christmas mug. And people who call her people snowflakes. And people who won't wear masks. And people making everything so PC all the time. Literally, it goes from every spectrum. I thought it was interesting because that's part of the reason why we're in our current political climate. Is because people are just so divided. Because this book was written in 2016, and Trump was elected in 2016. A lot of things have escalated since 2016. Yeah, so I was like, Boy, hmm. they? Like my stress levels, anyway. For real. <laughs> I think that brings up a good point, though, because he also says we need to avoid painting those who disagree with us with a broad brush yeah we villainize people who disagree with yeah, us so you know you disagree on you know usually it's one thing we disagree about and it's just suddenly they are evil they are evil and yeah and it's like oh you just kind of make assumptions that they believe a lot of things that they might not believe oh uh, this person voted for trump so they must be an idiot it's like no there's they might have things that you disagree but there's a reason why they did it. I well, just, that's why sure. we're in a democracy, because, like, everybody doesn't agree with each other. There are differences, and some people go one way, and other people go other ways. But, I don't know, I'm more open for a third party, not a two-party system. Especially <laughs> since both two parties are basically the same behind closed doors, to be honest. <laughs> reminds me of, what's that South Park episode where it's like you need to choose between a... <gasps> A oh! turd sand, a turd sandwich, and a giant douche. The, giant douche. Giant douche. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much the way I feel every four years. It's like turd sandwich or giant douche. What do you choose? Yeah, I really oh. hate that the past two elections have literally just been picking who I dislike the least. And I, yeah. I think That's it's weird. sad because I'm not a Trump supporter. So I've just been voting for whoever the Democrats put forward. And I hate saying that I'm just going to vote blue no matter who. Like, that seems like a really sucky thing to base your voting off of. Like, actively tell me why I should vote for you. Don't tell me why the other guy sucks. <laughs> but we could be ruled by a king, so I guess it could be worse. I like that he says at the end of this chapter that there's not really a step-by-step process to get better with the whole accepting responsibility thing and he says that you just kind of have to do the thing you just need to actively make choices to get better or you don't and that it's not mm-hmm. easy to accept responsibility and change values and you need to be patient it takes time it's not instant gratification you know it's going to take more than just being like oh today i'm gonna work out and then it's like okay well what about tomorrow? Making any kind of big change takes time. I feel like we get this as musicians a lot, and we have an insight to how habit-based people are and how routine-based people are. Everything takes practice, and changing big aspects of yourself takes time, practice, patience. And if you're not going to have that mm-hmm. with yourself, you're not going to change. Preach. Mm-hmm. Bitch, I'd be preaching all day. He said that if you're feeling uncertainty, feeling like a failure or a fraud, or if you are facing rejection by peers or whoever because your relationships don't hold up when your values change, these are all possible side effects of changing facets of yourself. I have a a friend who was struggling with alcoholism, and they stopped drinking and they said that they lost a lot of friends because they stopped drinking and i was like oh man that's really sad i'm sorry to hear that but they were like it's fine honestly they were bad influences on me and if all they value is me drinking then that's not worth it to me i was like oh that's a really interesting perspective to get out of that i mean i haven't been through that but i know people who have And it's like, would you rather put yourself in a worse position or a more positive position? Mm -hmm. 
brings us to our next chapter, which is chapter six. You're wrong about everything, but so am I. <laughs> That's the author, not me. I'm right about everything. Oh, I'm well, just wrong. <laughs> I liked this chapter a lot more than I liked chapter five. I think <laughs> some things he said in chapter six really resonated with me. Noticing flaws in your past is good because that means you've grown. I actually think about this with practicing. Is that really nerdy of me? Because That's one of the things I thought about too. If you think about it, it's just like, oh, I totally am not doing well. I'm practicing a lot of flute excerpts right now. And so how I kind of see it is it's not perfection, but progress. I mean, yeah, I definitely played the Mendelssohn flute scared so excerpt really well the last time I played it, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect now at it. I might have to get back into the groove of practicing this excerpt in two breaths and not die. Midsummer Night's Dream. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Super fun. If you don't know Flute Raider, it's a it basically ends this movement. It's basically it's a, a metal pipe that you blow into <laughs> and it has like finger holes on it. Holes? It has holes and you put your fingers on the holes while you're blowing. Perfectly defined by a <laughs> fiddle player. <laughs> and it makes sound. <laughs> it's just, oh, it makes sound. It makes okay, lots now. of sound. Now I got it. There's a quote that he says that I wrote down. It said, we shouldn't seek to find the ultimate right answer for ourselves, but rather we should seek to chip away at the ways that we're wrong today so we can be a little less wrong tomorrow. Yeah, that kind of goes along with another quote he has in there. Certainty is the enemy of growth. I think if you are certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are right about something, you won't open yourself up to possibly changing your mind if it turns out you were wrong. I think people not being open to the fact that they could be wrong about things is a pretty big problem in the world, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People act out of certainty. You might not actively think that you're certain in things, but usually your behaviors are founded in some sort of certainty. I really like that quote as well because I have that actually screenshot in my notes. I thought about it as being a teacher because I'm always learning as a teacher. Oh, yeah. Even though I am teaching, like, certain things to my flute students. But sometimes I have to, like, learn myself. Like, for instance, I have a student. He loves playing jazz. But he's doing flute lessons to, like, work on basics. But he also wants to work on feeling more comfortable with playing jazz standards, playing, like, some technical stuff and even lyrical stuff and improvising and so what it got me doing was learning how to do more jazz improv did we take it for one semester at ksu Brittany? yeah just one semester yeah like we took it one semester and i learned a lot from it and i thought it was the coolest class ever and i didn't do as much of it in grad school but i do improvise a lot when i'm playing with one of my newer music ensembles because sometimes we get pieces where we have to improvise and I'm like, okay, like, here we go. But Mm -hmm. I think when the student came into my studio years ago, it got me to learn and listen more to jazz and how can I improvise and teach him basic things that will help him. But if I told him, like, up and coming, no, I wouldn't have learned. I wouldn't have grown. I wouldn't have opened my mind to music a lot more than I have today. He talks about basically how we get to the point of being so certain about things that we don't know about how we get so based in these thoughts brains basically make meaning and associations associations between things but your brain also makes mistakes with input data it forgets and misinterprets things frequently your brains are designed to hold on to the meanings that they form as a survival instinct for us even when it's presented with scientifically proven evidence that would suggest otherwise. So this explains why people believe crazy things or would support someone who isn't a good leader or really anything that we hold to be self-evident and true. And then he makes it a point to say that most of our beliefs are wrong. Like just everyone straight up. Wrong. <laughs> yeah, I find it helpful to look at anything that I believe, no matter if it's something innocuous or something crazy asking myself what is it that I think I know that makes me believe this Mm -hmm. and how do I know what I think I know like what bit of evidence or data that I receive to make me think that I know that and if it turns out that 
you know, you think you know something, but you think you know it for bad reasons, then it's probably a good idea to examine that and figure out, okay, what is the actual data here? Basically, what I'm trying to say is just making sure that you have good reasons to believe what you believe. Yeah. And not mm-hmm. just believe it because that's what I grew up believing. That's what somebody told me and I just believe them. Or, or it's convenient you know, whatever for you, it is. Or... Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to kind of fall into that trap of like sticking to those beliefs of like what you believed when you were growing up and mm-hmm. kind of just like not looking into multiple sources about like, well, I don't need to because this is, I was told by so-and-so about this and I'm just going to keep it that way. Especially in this day and age where you can literally find a scientific study backing any belief you could possibly have partially because mm-hmm. of misinformation and partially because of how money runs scientific studies and surveys and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For sure, yeah. I think a lot of times we can turn a blind eye to things we believe that are part of our identity. Mm-hmm. Like something mm-hmm. like, if I were to change my mind on this one thing, it would completely change who I am and how I see myself. So instead of actually examining it, you just sort of like the other way or put your blinders on so that you don't have to think about it because thinking about it might mean you actually have to make a big change and change is scary i've been there i've been there a lot and yeah (laughs) (laughs) i definitely had to like put the blinders down it was hard but i've done i i did it still sometimes i think like politics and religion are the obvious things in this context but it's not just limited to that it can literally be any facet of, like, who you are as a person. Like, if I believe mm-hmm. that I am a good baker, I mean, I think, I think I'm a decent baker. So, like, actually, no, that's my belief. I believe I'm a decent baker. I don't really have any proof. I just like to bake, and I follow recipes I can read, and my stuff turns out good, and people say my stuff is good, so I... I think I'm a decent baker. Like Gordon Ramsay, if he came with me, he's like, hey, this is raw. Smashes it on the ground. I would have my feelings hurt. I don't place a lot of my pride in being a decent baker, but that's a founded belief of mine. That's part of my complex identity. I can attest that you are a good baker because you've brought (laughs) me some things. Was it chocolate chip banana bread that you made? Oh, sounds good. Yeah. It's so good. Oh, man. It was so good. I don't know about y'all, but I don't really think about my sense of identity very much. Like, I kind of identify as, I, like, wake up in the morning, and I'm like, cat mom, dog mom, wife, good friend, violinist. And then beyond that, I'm kind of like, I don't know, I just kind of live my life. This chapter definitely kind of made me think about the different facets of who I am, and it was really kind of weird to think about. I think I've realized that I identify myself as a flutist and nothing else, but I think after it, this year, I definitely was just, like, thinking, like, I'm definitely more of a person than just flute. I had to stop doing that with COVID. I feel like I say this in, like, every other episode we do, and I, I've been telling David this a lot, and my therapist this a lot, but I was the breadwinner of the family. I it was a self-made musician. You know, I was hashtag boss bitch. Then COVID happened and I make less than half of what I was making in peak times before COVID. I I don't practice that much anymore, unfortunately. And I just feel like I'm kind of at an odds with music. So I can't for my own sanity just identify as a violinist because that is a whole part of me that kind of betrayed me in a way. Thanks COVID. (laughs) Thanks COVID. Fuck you COVID. I feel like it's unhealthy, and as musicians, we tend to identify solely as whatever we play or do, as a vocalist, as a violinist, as a flutist, flautist, flutist, flute player, flutist, 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 can have devastating consequences, because you are more than your instrument. I mean, my husband David, he works as a HR coordinator for Chick-fil-A, he doesn't identify as, you know, the first thing he thinks about in the morning is, I'm HR. Like, no. So, like, why do we wake up in the morning and the first thing we think about is, I'm a violinist. Does David watch The Office? My chance. 
We both watch The Office, yeah. Every time you're watching HR, I'm, like, thinking about Toby. Sorry. Yeah. No, Toby's the worst. <laughs> Goodbye, yeah. Toby. Sorry. But David is not a Toby. <laughs> David is definitely not a Toby. <laughs> we attach so much of our identity to our instrument or our music, our art. And that's mm-hmm. because we put a lot of time outside of work into what we do. Like, we've had to work up to this point through school, through gigs and networking. So why are we just that? Yeah. I think for me, I've just, like, focused so much on work that I've neglected other things and interests. And I'm now coming to a realization about that literally within the last few months and so I've been kind of doing other things I mean I'm still playing I'm still teaching but like I'm reading more it's really nice to read you know how long it's been since I've read a book (laughs) freaking I could have done it during the entirety of COVID and I kind of read a little bit but I've been reading a lot more and it's just like kind of opened my eyes of like things that are out there like I baked last I baked over the weekend I think these lemon mm-hmm. cookies they taste really good but Ooh, I feel I like there are other interest in things that I love doing that I've kind of neglected within the last few years I think ever since grad school really because mm-hmm. I think ever since I started grad school I literally just focused more on flute and that's all I focused on and I really lost a sense of myself because I used to be really social, I used to really do other things, not just flute, and now that things are coming back to life somewhat, in a way, I'm trying to do other things that don't just involve flute 24-7. Rainer, I would be interested in your perspective on this, because you are not a classical musician. Mm. You have not (laughs) gone to school for music. How much of your identity is tied up in your music not nearly as much now as it was years ago my bandmates and i have been together for i want to say 12 years give or take we've been a band yeah and when we first started of course you know the plan was you know six months to a year we'll just take the world by storm be famous rock stars and live the life spoiler alert that did not happen Many years ago, I heavily identified as a rock musician, singer, Mm -hmm. like that's who I was. I eventually just kind of had to come to terms with, okay, if it happens, it happens great, but it's probably not going to. So now I just do it Mm -hmm. because I love it. I enjoy writing songs. I enjoy playing what little guitar I'm able to play and collaborating with my bandmates to put stuff together and compose songs. It's just a lot of fun, and if I end up making some money off of it, cool. If not, I'm just going to keep doing it because I love it. I think that's a healthier approach to look at Mm -hmm. it because as classical musicians, we are thrust into this world of you need to sacrifice everything for your instrument, for your craft. You need to practice five hours a day while you're in school. God forbid you want to date. And we're also oh, yeah. <laughs> drilled into our heads that we're not going to make anything. And really, the only way to make a crap ton of money landing a performing gig is if you're playing for one of the big symphonies. I think Atlanta Symphony, their average salary is like 80000 But most regional symphonies, a full-time, it's not even salary-based, it's per service. Per service, So you, yeah. you'll make maybe a few thousand mm. a year if you're lucky, if you're like a full member. Wow. We both majored in performance. It's such an unhealthy narrative to tell people to work this hard. There's a slim chance you're going to get what you want. So why not just let people be like, hey, if you like this, practice, be good at it. But there are other outlets. There are other ways. Yeah, you don't just have to be a world-class soloist or performing in a symphony you know, one of the big five symphonies in the U.S., or you don't have to be a touring rock star. Like, you can do it. You can make a living off of it. You can have fun, but you can also enjoy your life. I'm noticing a small shift in people's mindsets. Maybe it's because I'm on social media a lot, and I see these things, and I'm Mm -hmm. experiencing these things, Mm -hmm. and kind of share that as well. But 
Somebody posted this on Instagram the other day, and they asked, what do you wish you learned in music school? And I literally put down, I wish that they actually taught us, one, how to do the freaking taxes, because they never taught us how to do that as a freelancer. Mm. It's so complicated. I exactly. didn't know that I could write off so no. much until I was in grad I school. Know. And you know who told right? me? It was a friend of mine. It wasn't even a professor. Yeah, I took like a teacher's course after grad school. And somebody that took the course previous to me was an accountant. And she did a whole lecture about it. And I literally took everything. Like, I could, I could write off Spotify? Like, hell yeah, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that I put down was exploring other options in music and not just performance or teaching. There are mm-hmm. other things that you can do out there in the music world that don't are specific to that. And I see that on social media a lot. Like there are people that are musicians that are web designers mm-hmm. and they help other musicians like create their websites if they're not sure where to start or if they don't really have the time or they don't Mm -hmm. have the knowledge there are other people that are podcasters Mm -hmm. and there's so much more out there that we can do and they don't really teach like i don't remember any of that in grad school not even taking entrepreneurship and basically it's like subconsciously the attitude is like you're going to get into a, a top symphony and if you don't you didn't make it and that's such a toxic i mean most of my income, like pre-COVID, came from teaching. Teaching private lessons, teaching clinicianing. I never had a pedagogy class. I would have loved to take a pedagogy class, but you could only take that if you were going for a music ed degree. What is the market like for like a studio musician for the instruments that y'all play? Like people who oh, are recording, God. like an artist who's recording an album and they need someone to come in and play violin on a couple tracks and they hire you to come in. If you can get in, it's good. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is it's regulated by a lot of union stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you need to be in the union. Which I think the only barrier that's separating me from joining the union is money. I just don't have the money to join it right now. I've been kind of thinking about it too. Like, should I join? Should I not? And I've even asked like my teachers about this too. And it's a mixed review about how beneficial it is or not. I've been told that you should only join the union if you have a reason to join the union. Like an orchestral job that you are required to be in the union. It's really interesting. I, you know, learning stuff about the union would have been nice to know in school too, because it's kind of this vague enigma and that's the thing you can actually get so many more gigs if you're in the union but everyone's like eh, maybe don't join the union maybe join the union and i'm like why it's very confusing i hate yeah. it i'm like okay all i have to do is pay like 200 dollars a year like why would i not join it but then people are like oh no you shouldn't join it unless you have a reason to i'm like okay why so that kind of it's crazy to me. So, like, if my band wanted to hire one of you to come record some tracks on our album, we would have to, what, how, contact the union? I don't, I don't even know what, what is that? If Brittany was part of the union and you asked her to do that, one, you would have to pay her a specific amount. Like, you can't go under a specific amount because they want to make sure that musicians get paid. What Fairly. else? I, it's, like, a certain amount of time. You need to mm-hmm. do breaks. Usually when you do recording sessions, when people think classical music's in recording, it's not local bands. It's more like TV shows, movies, stuff right. that are heavily contracted by the music union and like the filmmaking union. I guess we got really off topic from the book. We really did. <laughs> where oh, where rants. am I? These are good things to know. We'll bring Bringing it back. It back. Kind of talking about how certainty can be less malicious. If we're certain we should be, for example, making more, we should know what people are saying or have access to like your significant other's text, you will become more secure, or sorry, more insecure and entitled. You will always start worrying, start being anxious, start not feeling like you have a sense of worth, whether it's like, oh, I deserve to make this much money or like, oh, is, is David cheating on me? (laughs) and then you start feeling entitled like i deserve this higher pay or i deserve to know you know who david's texting all the time 
Which, both of those are unhealthy. I think one more than the other, but... <laughs> so I guess in closing these two chapters, how are you all feeling about this book so far, or about these chapters in particular? I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the last episode about values. Mm-hmm. What do you value? Is it good for you or not? And I don't know, like, I think I thought more about values in chapter five. Like, what are you choosing? Are you choosing to take responsibility or choosing to be the victim all the time? And it Mm -hmm. kind of relates back to good or shitty values. Right. That's that's my take on it. (laughs) In the parlance of the book, what is it that you're choosing to give a fuck about? Mm -hmm. Being deliberate with those choices can make a big difference. Yeah, for real. Rainer, is there anything that you want to plug where we, our viewers, or I guess listeners, can find you or your band or anything? Not yet. Hopefully I didn't do a bad enough job in this recording. Uh, Maybe you guys will have me back sometime. My band, we're probably, I would say, a month or two away from having our EP finished. And once that's done, we're going to do a big sort of marketing campaign all that fun stuff so i'll have more info for you that sounds awesome yeah i mean i don't know about Catherine. i loved having you on (laughs) yeah i loved having you on too it's nice to have a perspective of a musician that's not a classical based i feel like there's a lot of value to that we kind of get in our own heads yeah we're very introverted and we kind of just like mingle a lot with like each other other classical musicians not outside (laughs) it's hard to remember that there are so many other areas of music that we aren't really privy towards yeah i blame it on music school (laughs) oh yeah because they basically like corral us into the practice rooms and we don't leave (laughs) we always stay in our building that's all we did it was lovely doing this with you both yeah thank you for coming on rainer i had a lot of fun thank you guys for having me i had a blast of course Fiddle and Pipians. Pipians. Yeah. We will dish out some fucks next week. Because I think we're doing the next two chapters next week. So we will be talking about not giving any more fucks mm-hmm. soon. <laughs> Yay. I don't know. It's a Monday. I can't think. <gasps> no, Catherine, it's a Wednesday. I'm thinking about food. So same. I'm very hungry. <laughs> I have to teach like three hours of lessons after this, so I'm just like, I, I need food before Gross. I teach children. Thank you for listening. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and that is our awkward outro. <laughs> Can I stop recording now? <laughs>